the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at letstalkfaith.com. Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded. The Bible says speaking the truth in love. The motivation is love. Not that you just feel better because you just got this off of you. It's been bothering you. Now, the Bible says that when you speak the truth, you are to speak in love. That is to say that what you are saying is for the benefit of other people. That's why some people don't receive what we have to say to them. Because they know, they sense that it's not out of love. It may be out of obligation. It may be, I've just been burdened by this, but it's not out of a sense of love. So we are to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.25 says that we are to speak truth and not falsehood. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. If you love somebody and really care about them, you've got to go to them if they're in error and confront them. And I know that it goes through people's minds, well, isn't that judging? No, it's not judging. Not if it's clearly error. Now, you can't go to them and say, I know why you said that in church, because you wanted to look good. Isn't that the truth? No, that's judging because you are trying to judge their motives and you don't know that. Nobody knows the motives but the Lord and that individual. some things we may not like to hear, but those who love us need to tell us the truth in love. And that's important, that it's done in love. It's not just speaking the truth. You know, some people speak the truth, but they speak it with brutality. Well, we're going to start today's verse-by-verse program with Pastor Steve talking about the importance of truth coming from a heart of love. If you're not able to listen to the entirety of today's program, I would encourage you to surf over to versebyverseradio.org and sign up for our podcast. That way you can listen when it suits your schedule. Speaking of a schedule, we have to keep up with ours. We have two more programs dealing with biblical instructions for godly living with our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff. And now here is Pastor Steve. Some things we may not like to hear, but those who love us need to tell us the truth in love. And that's important that it's in love. It is not just speaking the truth. You know, there are some people, and I've known people like this, they are brutal in the way they speak to you. Tactless, they just dump on you. And if you ever challenge them on, why are you doing this? They'd say, hey, I just have to get this off my chest. I feel better. Yeah, but I feel lousy now. The Bible says speaking the truth in love, the motivation is love, not that you just feel better because you just got this off of you. It's been bothering you. Well, the Bible says that when you speak the truth, you are to speak in love. That is to say that what you are saying is for the benefit of other people. That's why some people don't receive what we have to say to them. Because they know, they sense that it's not out of love. It may be out of obligation. 
It may be, I've just been burdened by this, but it's not out of a sense of love. So we are to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.25 says that we are to speak truth and not falsehood. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. If you love somebody and really care about them, you've got to go to them if they're in error and confront them. And I know that it goes through people's minds, well, isn't that judging? No, it's not judging. Not if it's clearly error. Now, you can't go to them and say, I know why you said that in church, because you wanted to look good. Isn't that the truth? No, that's judging because you are trying to judge their motives and you don't know that. Nobody knows the motives but the Lord and that individual. And even we're not that great at knowing our own motives. So you can't do that. But if you see somebody who's in error biblically and their life does not, and we're talking about a Christian now, and their life is not in accord with Scripture, let's say they're in adultery, let's say they're lying, let's say they're being cruel to somebody, whatever. You have every right to go to them. In fact, you're in sin if you don't go to them. We are to speak the truth in love and confront people. And that's what the writer is doing. You know why? Because he cares about them. Imagine if he years ago said, I can't write this. What will they think of me? We'd never have the book of Hebrews. Well, I think we would. God would have just raised up somebody else. But this man has a pastoral heart. He's one of their pastors. Now we know. And pastors often have to say things that reprove and rebuke people. Now, it's not just limited to the pastorate, because that's why Ephesians 4 is so important. Ephesians is written to the church, not just the pastors. So we all have that responsibility. Now, I know sometimes after I finish a hard message, somebody will come up to me, and I have a friend who in the past has said, now, you've gone from preaching to meddling. You're meddling. I know what he means, and that's all right. That's all right. You know why? Because there's a verse for everything. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for not only teaching, but for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. It doesn't mean stand up behind the pulpit. It means proclaim that word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why are we to do this? Because he says the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They will not endure the things that Dave Mount just sang about. We believe, and I would add in our preaching, we believe and we teach it. They'll not endure that because they'll want to have their ears tickled and they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They want to just hear religious platitudes. They want to hear things that make them feel good. Tell me how I can build my self-esteem. Don't tell me how wretched I am. See, now the writer to the Hebrews doesn't believe that. He's not out to build their self-esteem. He is to do a little meddling because that's why Scripture is given to teach, but to reprove and to rebuke, because you love people, because you want what's best for them. And what is best for a believer but to know the truth and live by the truth? And if we love people and they're out of God's will, we need to confront them and tell them. That's not a witch hunt. That doesn't mean you're looking for this. But when it comes to your attention, you've got to do something. So that's the first principle, speaking the truth. And that's what the writer says. He says, my conscience is clear. My conscience is absolutely clear that what I've done, I've done because I care about you. We've only desired to act honorably. Second principle, and it's this, not everyone who asks us to pray for them has a right to be prayed for. And you may have never thought about this. The writer to the Hebrews had to tell these people that he deserved their prayers. He said, in essence, because. Pray for us because I care about you. 
my conscience is clear and we've lived honorably. And what does this say to us? Sometimes people ask us to pray for them about a specific thing. And we might say, sure, but I want you to think about it from this point on and from this perspective. If they are not walking in obedience with the Lord, and I'm not talking about perfect. There's none of us who's perfect, but I'm talking about some consistency. If they're backslidden or they're what we would say, have displayed such carnality that they are out of fellowship with the Lord, actually it'd be a waste of your prayer time to labor in prayer for them. You know why? Because being out of fellowship with the Lord, they can't discern what God's will is for them. In fact, you know what God's will is for them better than them because you know you ought to pray that they get restored to fellowship, that they confess their sin and repent. So you ought to be a little discerning about who you pray for. Somebody comes up to you who's completely out of the will of God, don't even waste your time because they don't know what they should be praying for except that they ought to be restored to fellowship. Prayer time is valuable time should be used wisely. So when someone comes up to you, you need to be discerning. Don't just say, sure. Sure, I'm going to pray for you. And I'm just saying this from what the writer said. Pray for me because I'm worthy of your prayers. I'm not asking you to pray for somebody who's out of the will of God. I'm in the will of God, and therefore I believe this is God's will, so I'm asking you to pray for me. It'd be a terrible thing to spend a lot of time in praying for something that wasn't God's will. It's a waste of your time. There are people you can pray for who have specific requests, and they are walking with the Lord. And what was his specific prayer request? Verse 19 says, I urge you all the more to do this that I may be restored to you sooner. He wants to be restored to them. He's somewhere out in the Roman Empire. He wants to get back to this church, which is probably his home church, where he was one of the spiritual leaders, one of the pastors. So now we move from asking them to pray for him, and that's all that these verses are about, these two verses. Our writer now expresses a prayer for them. He said, pray for me. Here's his prayer for the readers. Verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a magnificent prayer. It is his closing benediction for the people, and it contains a wealth of theology of many truths, as we said before previously, elaborated on. First of all, he addresses his prayer to the God of peace. Tremendous statement. The Apostle Paul used this phrase many times. Romans 15.33, 2 Corinthians 13.11, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, and there are other times where he called God the God of peace. Now, some people look at that and say, aha, that proves that Paul wrote this letter. No, it doesn't prove that. It just was a common way of addressing God in the early days of the church. That's all it really proves. Many people could have used that. So when you read about Timothy and you read about the God of peace, don't say, aha, that proves something. Doesn't prove anything. Paul may have written it, but we don't know. We don't know. It was commonly used. Why? Because it described clearly what salvation was all about. God was the God of peace. The gospel had brought peace to man's heart. Now let's look at Romans chapter 5. A great verse that tells us about this. Having stated in Romans 1 through 4, the gospel, and the gospel being that we were sinners, and we are sinners, but we were sinners who had no provision for righteousness in ourselves. We were void of any righteousness, and God is a holy God. And in the first three chapters, the apostle Paul has said that every group of mankind is guilty before a holy God. 
a God who is righteous and man has no righteousness in and of himself. He has fallen. He is depraved. He is guilty. He doesn't seek after God. He runs away from God. He's not a worshiper of God. He is an idolater. He doesn't obey the Ten Commandments. He doesn't obey any of the law. The Jewish people have violated the law of Moses and the pagan has violated all of that. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he says, but God has provided righteousness for you through the death of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ died, he paid for your sins. They were paid for when you trust Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. God not only forgives your sins, he actually on your account declares that you are righteous. You may not always behave righteously, but you are declared righteous. That's called justification. It is a legal transaction. You are declared righteous. You are justified by God. And then in chapter 4, he gives a little illustration of Abraham who was declared righteous. Why? Because he kept the law? No, because he put his faith in the Lord. The law was actually like 400 years after Abraham. So how could anyone be saved by keeping the law? And then he finally says, and this is the point we want to look at, chapter 5, Verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, here's a result of it. Here's a result of being justified, declared righteous by faith. And I might add in faith alone, that's the thought here. We have what? Peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 6.15, we're told that it is the gospel of peace. You see, because of our sin, not only were we separated from God, We had no fellowship with him. That's why I remember as a young boy believing that I was here and God was here. Removed from me. I didn't know a whole lot about the Bible, but that was pretty good theology. I knew that God was not in my life. We were separated from God. But what I didn't know, and what many of you may not have known, is that we were at war with God. We were at war with him. Romans 8, 7 says that we were hostile towards God. Even those who say, well, I always believed in him. Actually, that's probably not the case. You always believed, at least when you were younger, believed in a God you created in your mind, not the God of the Bible, unless you were saved in an early age. But we hated him. We were at enmity with him. Romans 8, 7, that's what Paul said. But the moment you trusted Christ, you know what happened? The war was over. The war was over. And God completely forgave all of our sins, and he gave us a salvation of peace with him. That's been one of the great themes throughout this letter to the Hebrews, that man is not right with God through animal sacrifices, but he's right with God through Jesus Christ. Would you look at Hebrews chapter 10? I just want to review a little bit in case your hearing aid was in the wrong ear. Hebrews chapter 10. Now, this has been an ongoing theme, and of course it applies a lot to the Hebrews because that was their lifestyle. But Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, for the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, the law was a shadow. It wasn't the essence of Christ. Can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near or make complete or save those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had any consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What a great, great verse. The reason the Jewish people had to continually have sacrifices ongoing, not only throughout the year, but every year, the Day of Atonement, there was a sacrifice for the nation's sins. The reason they had to do this year after year and day after day is because no animal sacrifice could permanently deal with sin. 
And the point is this, if an animal sacrifice could permanently and eternally take away your sin and deal with your sin, then why did it have to be repeated? You wouldn't need it to be repeated. The fact that it was repeated was a reminder that you still had sins that needed to be dealt with. That's why the death of Jesus Christ can never be repeated. It is once and for all. That's why we don't believe that you go to a meeting on a Saturday night or Sunday, you take a little wafer, and you practice the death of Christ all over again. He died once and for all. Animal sacrifices were significant in that the sacrifice was only temporarily delivered from present judgment. It was helpful. Rather than God deal with you in judgment, you warded off, in a sense, that judgment. But it was not eternal judgment. But through the death of Jesus Christ, there is no eternal judgment. Because now you have peace with God. It's a wonderful truth. How can our sin be completely and permanently forgiven? You say, I don't understand. What are you talking about? How can it be? Well, notice the next phrase in Hebrews as we go back to Hebrews 13. He says, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. The price of our peace was the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Colossians 1.20 says, he made peace through the blood of his cross. That's how peace was obtained. God cannot forgive just by looking at you saying, I think you're a nice person, I'm going to forgive you. God cannot say the war is over because I don't want to fight anymore. God doesn't want to fight to begin with. It's man who declared war. The price of our peace was the blood of Jesus Christ. It is the blood of Christ that had to be shed. And while on earth, Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Remember John 10? I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. But here he's called the great shepherd. Not just the good shepherd, the great shepherd. As the good shepherd, he died for us. But as the great shepherd, he has been raised from the dead and now he ministers to us and he equips us and he helps us in many ways. You see, having died for us, God the Father raised up Christ from the dead. Now, what was the resurrection all about? The resurrection was, in essence, proving that God has accepted the death of his son. It was saying that God's justice was satisfied with the death of Christ. It is proof positive that our sins have been dealt with. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you and I have no assurance that our sins have been dealt with. But his resurrection proves that God has accepted his death and that the new covenant is established by his shed blood. That's a tremendous truth. That's the proof. And God has exalted him. God has exalted him. Hebrews chapter 8 speaks of the wonderful benefits of the new covenant. You know how the new covenant is different from the old covenant? The new covenant is one of forgiveness. The old covenant could not forgive you. The law could not forgive. It pointed out your sin. It could not forgive. The new covenant is one of forgiveness. He speaks about that. I'll take away their sins. The new covenant is one of internalizing the truth. He says, I'll put the law within your heart. It isn't just something you perform now. It's something you desire to do. It's something you want to do. That's the new covenant. He also says, I'll give you a new nature. It's internal. That's the new covenant. God has raised up Jesus Christ from the dead. He died for our sins. He established the new covenant. We come to him. We've accepted him. His sacrifice for us has been accepted by God. He has been exalted. He has been resurrected. And he is now where? At the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the message of the book of Hebrews. We have an exalted one in heaven. Our ongoing high priest. Proof positive our sins have been forgiven. So... He died for a sheep as the good shepherd, but Hebrews 13.20 says he's the great shepherd. He's the resurrected shepherd, and he lives in heaven now, ministering to his sheep on earth. He's also, by the way, in 1 Peter chapter 5, called the chief shepherd. 
And that is in connection with he's coming back for his sheep. Now, God displayed incredible power when he raised Christ from the dead. But whatever happened to that power? Is it available for us today? Well, that's all part of the writer's prayer. Notice verse 21. Here's his specific prayer. In verse 20, he's just telling us about God. But in verse 21, he says his prayer, May the God of peace equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The same God who raised up Christ is available to equip us to do his will. That's what this verse is saying. Now, what does it mean to be equipped? I really believe that's a foreign term to us. But it was a very familiar term to first century people acquainted with the Greek language. It certainly was familiar to doctors because this word was used in ancient literature of setting a bone. A doctor would equip someone with a broken bone, setting a bone. It was also familiar to fishermen because it was used of mending a broken net. In fact, it's even used in the New Testament that way, of the apostles having a broken net, of equipping that net or mending it or setting it together. Now, basically, the word means to put into proper condition. Something has been broken or something's not functioning properly. To equip it was to put it into a proper condition. So to equip a Christian meant that we are put into a condition so that we will function as God intended us to function. A word that may help you rather than equip, just a synonym for this, I would say would be mature, to mature us. That's a good enough term here. To become mature so that we will be useful to the Lord. I think that's the essence of thought. He's praying that these believers, and it certainly applies to us, will be mature so that we will be useful to the Lord. So the question is, so how does God mature us? How does he equip us to do his will in all areas of life? You might wonder, well, how can I do God's will? What does God want me to do? How can I do God's will? Well, verse 21 says he equips you in every good thing to do his will. Watch this. This is how he does it. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. He works in us. It is God at work in us who enables us to do what pleases him. Once you know this is cooperative effort. It is not a passive submission, but a willful and a joyful cooperative obedience. You have to turn to Philippians chapter 2 because the Apostle Paul elaborated on this and clarified this, and this is very, very helpful. This is great because this deals with something that is hardly mentioned today. It's called sanctification. How do you grow? How do you grow as a Christian? There's a lot of false views, a lot of false views about sanctification or growing. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, he writes, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Watch this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the human side of growing. There is a divine side. Don't turn from Philippians. We're going to look at the human side first. Now, what does this verse not mean? This throws a lot of people and they say, but wait a minute, work for your salvation? No, it didn't say work for your salvation. That would contradict what everything else in the Bible says about salvation. The Bible says salvation is a free gift. The Bible says you can't work for it. The Bible says that for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So he can't possibly be saying work for your salvation. Notice the term is work out your salvation, which means work out in daily conduct what God has already given you. God has placed within you salvation. Now work it out. Work it out. In other words, make an effort to live a holy and obedient life. God has given you salvation. Now obey him. So according to this verse, we have a responsibility to make an effort to grow. 
and it's aggressive and it's disciplined. And I want you to know there are many Christians who do not follow this. They have embraced a sanctification theory which is known by the expression, let go and let God. That's not true. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that we're just passive, that we ought to say, God, you do it all. This verse says you do it. You work out your salvation. The Apostle Paul says, I beat my body into submission. I discipline myself. So holy living takes an effort on our part. But you may say, wait a minute, is it all us? No, I didn't say it was all us. It's a cooperative effort. Holy living can't be all human effort. Where does God fit in? Well, verse 13 is the divine side of growing. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As soon as we are saved, God begins to work within us. God works in us to produce both, according to this verse, the desire and the power to live a Christian life. You have been listening to Verse by Verse with our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff. Our series is called Biblical Instructions for Godly Living. And if you have missed any of it, you can get caught up by surfing to versebyverseradio.org and clicking on the Archives tab. There you will find past episodes and you can pick up what you might have missed. I'd have to say that our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff, has given us a lot to think about, as he usually does. We're out of time for today, so please plan to join us next time for Verse by Verse. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.